When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Erskine is behind the board. Hey, students, we have made it through week number one of Back to Class 2022. Go home and exhale. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine on the board. And in the newsroom on this Friday is Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Both all will be joining us around the big round table, the virtual round table, coming up after the 40, uh, 4.30 news. Hang on for that. And if you would like to throw something on the table, we would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open. It's an all request Friday, but I have a feeling you might be hearing a lot of meatloaf because uh sad news today uh meatloaf passed away uh yesterday and um uh, had some history of some health issues uh over uh, the years and such um but what a what a uh just a, a monster in the music business and uh one of those albums that just uh uh, you know, we'll go down, uh, we'll go down as one of the greatest albums of all time. Uh, that's for sure with, uh, that out of hell and, uh, meatloaf. Of course, it's funny, uh, uh, on social media today, I'm seeing, uh, lots of people who, uh, lots of cohorts and peers in the business posting their pictures of them and meatloaf. He was one of those guys. He was such a, a nice guy. He was such a nice man. I interviewed him uh, a couple of times and I'm going to play, we're going to play an interview for you coming up a little later on in the show. Uh, but, uh, was one of those nice guys that always made you feel at home, always, uh, you know, put on a show as soon as it was time to, to turn the mic on. You know, he rose to the occasion and, and, uh, always made it a very exciting interview and was always open to take pictures with people and and uh, tell his story and and uh, and do his thing so a very sad day today and I'm sure a lot of people right now are thinking of their memories of paradise by the dashboard light or any of the other great songs uh, on that album which we'll try to play uh, throughout the course of the day uh, also going to talk about that coming up a little later on uh, with Alan cross and as I mentioned I think this interview is from like 2010 uh, by the sound of um, my voice uh but anyway it's uh it's fascinating but it'll give you uh it was it was a longer interview we're only, only going to play a, a few minutes of it uh but this focuses more on uh the bad out of hell experience and 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 more of that era of uh of um his career and actually he took phone calls <laughs> like when does that happen <laughs> like he I, I can't believe it we're gonna take calls you want to take calls we'll take calls and uh uh, yeah, so he actually he actually came on the show and and answered calls from listeners, which was which was absolutely fabulous. So I'm going to play uh, uh, that interview coming up a little later on, probably in the five o'clock hour. Also, uh, wow, here's another giant guest. Roberta Bonder is going to be joining us. Uh, first female Canadian astronaut in space. Hard to believe the 30th anniversary of her uh, up in space. And we all remember it uh, greatly, especially as Canadians being so proud. So we're going to talk to her. Always fascinating to talk to people who have been out of this world. Uh, always interesting guests, and we're going to uh, talk to her coming up a little later on. Also uh, going to talk about uh, some of the delay and where we are with boosters and uh, the poll question of the day actually asking, uh, should the uh, vaccine, proof of vaccine mandates be updated to include boosters? A bit slower of an uptake on this uh than the first two shots which is understandable lots of reasoning for that um but we'll talk about that coming up a little later on also as i mentioned alan cross is going to be joining us and talk about uh we should do a series with alan obituaries of rock with alan cross and you know because it seems what we're calling them it's either someone selling the rights to their music or someone from the great era of rock and roll has passed away 
when you're uh, my age and so and you hear anniversaries like this, you think, oh, man, was it that long ago? Uh, but it was hard to believe that 30 years ago, tomorrow, January 22nd, 1992, uh, Roberta Bonder became the first female Canadian astronaut and the world's first uh, neurologist in space when she flew aboard the American Space Shuttle Discovery, blazing a trail for women and inspiring uh, a nation as a true Canadian icon and to celebrate the anniversary uh, of this great Canadian. Other great Canadians are joining for a virtual celebration. We'll talk about that and, of course, uh, the celebration. Uh, and, and, and reflecting on 30 years after this. Roberta Bonder is with us, Earth's first neurologist in space, first female Canadian astronaut, scientist, medical uh, doctor, environmentalist, and photographer. Roberta, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, and I thought for a minute there you won't be, wouldn't be able to get your breath with all of that stuff. <laughs> There's a lot here. Uh, I remember, like, you know, you think of the Canada, the Canada arm, uh, Roberta Bonder, uh, Chris Hadfield. There's some really strong Canadians representing space, and I remember this like it was yesterday. It was a big deal. Um, what do you, as you look back at 30 years, uh, the 30 years that have passed, what stands out still to you at this point looking back at that period in your life? What stands out even 30 years later? There are a few things that stand out. And I think, I, if I'm honest, the thing that stands out the most is being smacked and gobsmacked with the reality of Earth as a planet, seeing, it's trite to say seeing the edge of the Earth, but it is the real-time emotional moment of seeing the, the Earth spinning silently below this huge, huge mass and blackness that one's eyes can't penetrate with stars that don't twinkle with light from stars that are probably no longer exist. Man, I get chills up my spine just listening to that. What questions have you been asked the most? What did you get asked the most? And how has that question changed in 30 years? Is it different what people ask you now as opposed to what they asked you 30 years ago? Thank goodness it's different. uh, because, And thank goodness there have been other astronauts that someone like Chris Hadfield would would go on record to tell people how to use the bathroom in space because I think it was the most <laughs> frequently asked question when I came back was, uh, you know, how do you go to the bathroom in space? It's a mellowed a little bit, uh, certainly now, because a lot, a lot of these answers are online. Uh, probably no real-life demonstrations yet, however. Uh, mm. But I do think that looking at the Earth from space, people people really want to know. They, they want to be inspired. They, they want to have that view and that is what is the tough thing to share and what really I've dedicated the rest of my life to trying to do. How much has uh, or how much have comments on the environment changed in 30 years? It's very true. The, the conversation the environment has changed. I mean, we've gone from an era back in the Apollo days when people took a photograph of the Earth in entirety, called the Blue Marble Shot, to Earth rise uh, from coming from the, the moon and seeing the Earth rise up above the horizon of, of the moon. We've come a long way because people have really wanted to take care of the environment. And I think there's a time when, through this COVID period, too, that people's attitude towards the natural world, I think, has shifted and shifted in a more positive way that for a person's mental health, getting outside, it's, it's very important to know that there is a, a world without human construct where people can be free from some of the, the issues that they face on a day-to-day basis that give stress. And I, I do feel that, that that really has shifted. It's much more of an international involvement now. You, no longer can people be isolated in their own little globe. It is a, it is a big globe with all these countries needing to participate uh, to deal with climate change. What about the direction? Because, you know, you, you think about the space industry. It's, it's been around for a long time now. Uh, you talked about the Apollo series and such, and we know where that would happen there. Then, of course, the generation you're a part of with the space shuttle and actually building uh, the International Space Station and such. Uh, now we're talking again about going back to the moon and then on to Mars. I've talked to various professors on this, and they thought we would spend more time uh, developing whatever on the moon, as opposed to the direction that we've gone in. What do you think? What do you think about the, the the direction that the space industry has gone in in the last even fifty years, sixty years? Well, I certainly agree with the moon part. I mean, I I went on record early on about the International Space Station. I felt that someone in the states, because of course they really propel the Western advance of space 
activities in the in the old I say old days because I'm talking back now in the 80s. Uh, it was a time when people didn't have the charisma or the vision to really say, hey, you know, instead of putting a station around the earth, why don't we take get the rocket power, do it differently, do it better, establish things on the surface of the moon. And I think that would have been, that would have continued to be intriguing for people. Uh, sometimes we sell the International Space Station short. I mean, it does a lot of great things in terms of, in terms of earth observation and science. But I do agree that the moon would have been a prefer preferred step, and now we're going to go back there. Uh, do we have, as a society, a renewed interest in all of this? It seemed that at one time during the shuttle series, they were they were going up so often that that, that they didn't even make the news. Um, it, it now seems now whether this is you know to do with the the bazillionaires flying in space or not, but it seems that there's a renewed interest. Uh, talk about that in in what you see uh, as as far as the future and and public support for this. It's interesting about the billionaire flights and public support. Uh, the billionaire flights, I look at it as a two-sided coin. One side is lighter and more enlightened, and that deals with the spin-offs of technology, either to other space programs or to humanity at large. And the other side of the coin is a much darker one where people spend a lot of time, energy, and money, resources that are in short supply for, for many nations, to go and just play with smarties in the free fall of space. I think we look to people who are leaders to try to have a deeper, a deeper understanding and to come back with a deeper impact on these particular missions. So, I mean, I look at the future of space as being one that is going to be great in terms of technology. Uh, we're going to learn a lot more about Mars. We're going to learn a lot more about other planets through the James Webb Space Telescope and looking at atmospheres and planets that exist outside of our solar system. So I think the, the renewed interest is because of a lot of unmanned things that are happening. And they're very, very exciting. Very exciting. Tell us about what's happening tomorrow and how you're celebrating the anniversary. The foundation that bears my name decided they would like to do a celebration of the 30th anniversary. I assume maybe they think that it might not be around for the 50th, but the 30 sounds like a good number. <laughs> and and so they decided that it would be good to have an online event and really speak to people about the kinds of things that the foundation does, trying to connect and reconnect people with nature, trying to get people to love something so they'll want to protect it. So all of this really uh, led me to do a series of podcasts uh, with some people that I knew and to get uh, some congratulatory messages. And then of course, uh, other dignitaries uh, were very, are very generous with their time. Uh, Governor General, Lieutenant Governor, uh, it, it's just uh, the prime minister sending a message. So I think there are, are a lot of people who recognize that this particular event 30 years ago was, was really something. It was the first flight of a Canadian after the Challenger accident. So I was the first mm. one that went up with an orange suit that did all the bailout training. And it was, it was mm. quite difficult. Uh, I didn't have anyone as a mentor. Uh, it, was, it was really being on the prow of a ship. So all of that is something to be celebrated. And it's not just inspiration for women. I, I truly believe that it's an inspiration for all genders and especially for Canadians. Roberta Bonder with us, uh, Earth's first neurolo uh, neurologist in space and the first female Canadian astronaut uh, and a long list of other accomplishments. Roberta, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share with us today, and congratulations on this milestone. Have fun tomorrow. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right. Uh, we've been talking about uh, vaccinations and getting you boosted and uh, all that kind of thing and waiting in lines, of course, for the booster. And now we're finding out there's a little bit of a, a, a slowdown in uptake in the booster. And a lot of that could be simply because lots of us have had it and got to wait another four to six weeks before we can get a shot. Uh, and other are others have, I guess, various reasons for uh, delaying it. Uh, let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association. Justin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me on today. So, Justin, are you noticing a difference with uh, with boosters? Uh, are we as eager to get the booster as we were the second shot, or is it just a case of making our way through the lineups? We've just got to get through the 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 bottleneck and such. What are you seeing as far as get the booster uptake? 
So it's an interesting time because we're, we're seeing that demand went really high. It surged over the holidays and into the first week of January. And now we've hit a cliff and demand has significantly plummeted for third shots uh, in all channels, public health, primary care, and in the pharmacies uh, that are offering this. And I think there's three primary reasons for this. One is, uh, if you look at a recent poll from Ipsos, uh, uh, 56% of Canadians have expressed some concerns around the long-term risks of a booster. And we didn't see that type of concern with the first and second shot. So that tells me we need more public health education about why a third shot is important. There is some uh, data out of the U.S., 10 different states, uh, looking at 80,000 hospitalizations that show that the third shot has a 90% efficacy uh, against hospitalization or severe uh, severe symptoms. And that's uh, two dose is only 57% effective. So we know that the third dose, and that's against Omicron, is very effective and it's keeping people either with mild symptoms or uh, not getting it at all. So that's one piece of the education. We've got to keep hammering home the message of the importance of that third shot. A lot of people believe now that, that it has always been a three-dose uh, regimen, that it was a three-dose vaccine. So that would play well against the, the Omicron uh, uh, virus. The other thing, too, that I think is impacting people is the fact that a lot of people are getting Omicron, albeit the uh, majority is a mild case of symptoms. And you mentioned about the at least waiting 30 days to get the third shot after infection. But maybe people believe, I've already got it. I have two doses. Now I have some natural immunity. And we know vaccines are better than natural immunity, but that would be leading to some people maybe hesitant to get third shots. And then the last piece uh, that I think is really important is that our definition in Ontario, at least, remains that a fully vaccinated Mm. person only needs two doses. So if we want to get into things as things reopen, we don't need that third shot. So there isn't as much incentive uh, to get that uh, spike in people uh, in demand going in to get the third shot. So all of those things combined, we're at 50% of people that are eligible in Ontario, just under 50% uh, that have received a third shot, which actually is leading Canada in terms of uh, getting uh, third shots out. Uh, you talked about uh, natural immunity for people that have had it. You know, you've got the super vaccine, apparently. But we don't know much about how long that lasts, do we? You are, many are suggesting the booster anyway. Yeah, so there's no question you get some protection from natural immunity once you've had infection. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know of any data that's suggesting a certain date yet, like is it six months, five months. Yeah. Um, there, uh, the booster will help that. It will uh, certainly prolong your immunity and enhance it. So even though you've had an infection, and we're seeing reinfection as well, with people that had it a year ago getting it again yeah. with Omicron because it's so transmissible. But uh, the booster does provide the maximum protection that's uh, available. So it is continuing to be important because our issue is hospital capacity. That's why we're faced with all of these lockdowns, which sounds logical, right? We don't have enough ICU beds and enough beds in the hospital. So clearly we need to look at measures that are going to actually invest in better capacity in our system, be it home care, community-based care, and hospital, because lockdowns clearly aren't working in terms of uh, stopping the spread of Omicron. That's certainly a discussion we have to have. What about lineups at pharmacies and waiting lines and such, Justin? What's it like if we want to get one at our pharmacy? There's a lot of availability now. Uh, right, I think we have a situation where we have more capacity and more supply than we have uh, in terms of demand, uh, which is flipping it on its side from where it was uh, when we last spoke, uh, where demand was outstripping the number of vaccinators and the supply in the system. But uh, now that we've hit that threshold of 50%, seeing much less demand. So if you want to go into your pharmacy, uh, there will be availability. Now, most pharmacies have some Pfizer, but the majority of what's in the pharmacy channel is Moderna. And we've spoken in the past that that Moderna continues to have some hesitancy out there, although I think we're seeing some improvements there. But uh, that can be another factor why people aren't going to get the third shot. Justin Bates with us, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association, your local pharmacist standing by with your booster uh, when needed. Justin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Alan Cross is with us, host of the ongoing history of new music. Alan, thanks for the time. I've seen you all over media. Uh, I know you've talked to death about this, but thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Not a problem at all. This is a, this is a big one for a, a lot of people. Uh, again, Meatloaf passing away uh, yesterday at the age of 74, uh, had some health issues and such. But talk about the magnitude of this album. It was almost like a theatrical performance. He was an actor rather than a rock star. Agree? Well, he, he was certainly what you would call a Wagnerian performer. He had this larger-than-life persona, and whenever he performed live, he left everything on the stage. And uh, he was often, I remember seeing in, in his prime back in the early days, the guy was, he was like possessed mm. the way he would perform on stage. I mean, he fell off the stage once in Toronto in 1978 and broke his leg, had to finish the rest of the show, um, uh, rest of the, uh, the tour in a wheelchair. And then he went and did, uh, you know, he, he collapsed on stage at least two other times in his life. Mm. So he was a character boy. He really was. We know that Jim Steinman was behind the, this album and 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 such. How much did uh, did Meatloaf, Marvin Lee, a day make out of being Meatloaf and that album? That's a very good question. Uh, when you have well, when you look at that album, you say you see Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell, songs by Jim Steinman. Jim Steinman was looking for a vehicle for his over the top, you know, larger than life operatic kind of gig. And he found that voice in Meatloaf. Um, but as the composer of the songs, he made all the money. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the way, the way it works. And uh, Meatloaf at one point was pretty much bankrupt. This was towards the end of the 1980s. He had uh, gone through some really rough times and some albums that were commercial failures. And uh, was you know he had lost his house and he wasn't sure if he could feed his family and all the rest of it. That happened largely because of uh, well there were some drug problems. He lost his voice for a while. He got into a, a really serious back and forth legal battle with Jim, Jim Steinman. And it wasn't until um, you know the the early 1980s that he sorted all that stuff out again and, and got his career back on track. So there was there was a good seven eight years in the wilderness for him. Where does this album stand in all the great albums? Well, it's one of the top ten selling albums of all time. Sold somewhere around forty-three million copies, probably higher because we, uh, you know, when that album came out, we own the best we can do are estimates. It was one of those records that you had to have. You had to have mm. the Eagles' greatest hits. You had to have <laughs> uh, Thriller. You had to have Rumors. You had to have Dark Side of the Moon. You pretty much had to have uh, a copy of Battered Hell somewhere, either on cassette or eight track or, or on vinyl. I remember when you'd go to a party and that was one of those albums you'd put on for the whole side. Yeah, you could. It was just, it's one of those weird things. There were um, seven songs in the album, and um, uh, only uh, five of them were released as singles. So that, that'll tell you something. So uh, is this kind of album still around, is it, you know, where we all of a sudden get something that is completely different? Uh, and, and, I mean, you know, I guess there's lots of things you could compare this to, certainly knowing his history and his acting career and such. But are there albums that are like this sort of concept? That, is this sort of thing dead? Uh, no, no. It's just not as common as before. And we've talked about this before when we, get through the this, this whole business of, of the death of the album. Uh, people are buying uh, single songs. People yeah. are putting songs on playlists. People are listening to playlists. They're not listening to albums the way we used to back in the day. And, and this was certainly one of those albums that you would put on and just let roll what side one and then side two. You wonder how many more hits uh, it's going to get, streams it's going to get after the announcement of this. How, oh, how much... Watching. Well, 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 what sort of spike will we see when something like this happens? Uh, usually somewhere between 500 and 1,000%. People will uh, start going, oh, well, first of all, what, what it's going to do is uh, a lot of uh, young people are going to go, what's this meatloaf thing? Why are we, so many people yeah. making a big deal out of it? Secondly, a lot of older people uh, are going to go, and go, oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, it was the, the summer of 1978, and <laughs> I was driving my 73 Pinto, and I had a Roadstar <laughs> cassette deck under the dash, and 
I had Paradise with the dashboard light going back and over and over and over again. As we tried to figure out exactly what they were trying to say with that baseball <laughs> play-by-play bit. And the girls were uh, all singing the song, you know, two out of three ain't bad. And yeah, that was just, uh, it, it's just one of, it was certainly summer 78. Uh, <laughs> that record was everywhere. Alan Cross has been with us, host of the ongoing History of New Music, talking about the passing of Meatloaf at age 74 and the legendary album uh, Bad Out of Hell. Alan, thanks for the time and stories as always. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. Bye. Will Erskine is on the board and making their way out of the newsroom around the big virtual roundtable. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Uh, good afternoon to you, table heads. I hope you're all doing well. Yeah, happy Friday. Yes, happy Friday. Happy Friday Enjoying this snow. Ooh. It's so beautiful out. I know. It's amazing. It's a, it looks like a snow globe out there. <laughs> Crop. Exactly. Has he used that today? I don't no. think he's used that today. Has he? No. Has he used it since then? Before we came on air and then he was doing his weather report, I said to Will, I want him to use the word grapple so grapple. bad. <laughs> I think we made so much fun of Jay uh, using the word grapple that he's refused to use it again. I hope we haven't, uh, you know, harmed him in any way. Dave, uh, anyway, just a reminder. Grapple. No, no Dave doesn't not. know what the hell we're talking he's about. He's been no. briefed anyway, on, on grapple. He, uh, yes. Jay's making up words as he goes. We're not, we're not, we're not sure how to stop him, Dave. Uh, anyway, uh, coming up a little later on in the 5 o'clock hour, I'm going to rerun an old interview I did with Meatloaf back in 2010, uh, talking about Paradise by the Dashboard Light and all the other stuff. And uh, as I've been, Will has been hearing this, because I also have a Louis Anderson interview. Like, you know you're old when you've got interviews of all the people that have passed away that day that you can rerun on your show. Uh, what is that saying? So hopefully we'll get a piece of that to play. Uh, for you a little uh, later on as well, but the meatloaf's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. All right, let's start with the poll question of the day before we get to meat. Uh, should proof of vaccine be upgraded to include the booster? Now, obviously, when you go in, you have the two, you're fine, uh, but as we work through uh, boosting the rest of the country, uh, should we have uh, now upgrade that, uh, the proof of vaccine, including the booster? 68% to our Twitter poll question of the day say yes. Lisa, or sorry, Diana, we'll start with you. Uh, what are your thoughts? Should it be upgraded to include the booster? I, I think now that things are starting to get better in terms of being able to actually book a booster appointment and go and get one, yeah. uh, I think it's fair to say that might be a good option. Um, but I think until we kind of get out of this this wave we're in right now, it might not be the best idea, only because uh, you're not supposed to go get your, your booster shot while you have symptoms or while you test positive. Yeah. So I, I think it puts a lot of people in a weird place. But uh, eventually, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, um, I haven't got mine yet, so uh, hopefully more of us will get them before they get to that point. Dave, what are your thoughts on this? Should the uh, proof of vaccine now be upgraded to include the booster? Yeah, I don't I don't think that they can do it just yet, only because, yeah. as we were talking about yesterday, there's a lot of people who did get, you know, COVID-19 over the holidays in the last, you know, few weeks um, who aren't able to get that booster yet. So I think that once that happens, I don't have a problem in, in doing that. And especially if we see down the road there's there is some kind of uh hesitancy or or a uh a stop in people getting the booster i think maybe then they would bring that in well uh guess we're unanimous i say they need a long countdown for it definitely give people a lot of warning a lot of we and say hey we're thinking of doing it but eventually yes but you know with that wiggle room all right, Meatloaf passes away uh, at the age of 74. Uh, I know you're all a bit younger than me. When Meatloaf's album was out in 1977, I did the math. I think I was 16. Uh, and by the summer of 78, it was massive. Uh, now, you guys obviously a lot younger than I am. What sort of impact does this have on you, Diana? Well, all I know is that no wedding is complete without Paradise by the Dashboard <laughs> Light and a drunk uncle on the dance floor. Um, but, you know, obviously that's diminishing uh, Meatloaf and, and the impact that he had on the music industry and rock and roll in general. Uh, not a big, huge Meatloaf fan. I love all kinds of music, though. Uh, I know we have a couple of his albums at home, my husband and I. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's sad. You know, he's an icon in the industry. And Dave, your thoughts on this album? Uh, Alan Cross said it's one of those albums stands out top uh, top ten. I think he said. Yeah, you know, I mean, he really was the master of the concept album, you know, and not just Paradise by the Dashboard Light, but others as well. I think that you know, for a time, he certainly was a trendsetter among uh, musicians, and and really kind of brought almost a, a an operatic. 
uh, yeah. quality to rock music. And I think, you know, as we, you know, go through, there's not as much rock anymore and that kind of thing. So I, I think that uh, anything that uh, we see that's current doesn't necessarily, um, isn't necessarily about Meatloaf, but he certainly has his place in history. Will, your thoughts? Uh, I grew up with uh, a bunch of Meatloaf albums in the house. Uh, my mom and dad uh, really liked him, and so that was in there in my unconscious early uh, early on in my mind. And uh, what stands out to me is just the fact that as we were saying off-air, and as Dave kind of just mentioned, operatic, he was so different and remained yeah. different. Even after he influenced other people, you still listen to him now in 2022, and you're thinking, well, this completely stands out. Something so weird, so different, and he had such a big impact and so much success with it. That is, uh, that's not something you repeat easily in history. And to me, more of a theater actor than a, than even a rock star. I mean, yes. Jim Steinman wrote wrote this you know this thing, Bad Out of Hell, and he was the character that played. Uh, he was the man that played the ma- the main character. And for him, I remember talking to him about that. It was it was sort of a role, and he went from being actor to rock star almost uh, uh, overnight. All right, uh, lots of chatter, uh, especially uh, you know people trying to get away for the winter, and and obviously some are doing it, some aren't doing it. Uh, lots of chatter about the staycation. So uh, let's do two versions here, one in Ontario, one in Canada. If you could have the ultimate Ontario ultimate vacation, what would it be? And in the Canadian version of, we'll start with you, Diana. Anywhere in Ontario, anything, what do you want to do? What do you want to see? Well, is this with restrictions or like, are we no, talking? Unlimited, no, so- unlimited budget. Oh, Any, it's and everything's free. open? Yep. Okay. Um, Ontario, man, there's so much I would like to see. Um. I, I'd like to explore more of Niagara. I know it's close to us mm-hmm. here, but I feel like there's a lot of stuff that I'd like to do uh, in terms of looking through that and uh, obviously exploring exploring beautiful wine country. I'd like to go further up north in Ontario. That would be nice Northern as Ontario well. is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to head up there um, and just kind of do... Like, and now what about Canada? Can- Canada? Canada? Uh, an ultimate staycation in Canada, hey? I'd have to say, like, Banff area. I think that's absolutely beautiful yeah, area. Nice. Um, yeah, just kind of relax and, yeah. Dave, your thoughts? Very similar, actually. You know, not long ago, uh, my wife and I went to Prince Edward County for a wine tour, and that was fantastic. Mm. Just did a few days out there. Um, doing that in Niagara would be fantastic as well. They've got so many great wineries that you can go and visit and try things. Um, in terms of Canada, yeah, Banff is one of those mm. places that I haven't been yet that I really want to go to, and, and really, um, you're, you're missing out if you don't get kind of that winter experience if yeah. you go. Yeah, I spent three years in Calgary, so I know Banff quite well. What an experience that was. Uh, Will, you, uh, Ontario and Canada? Uh, for all of Canada, and I guess you can lump it all together, uh, when I was a teenager, we did a uh, road trip right out through up to northern Ontario and then all the way out to BC. Uh, I would That's love cool. to do that again. That was so neat. You get such a perspective for this whole country. It's amazing. Sure. And uh, if I just had to pick Ontario, I don't know, a nice little isolated cabin in the woods where things grow more and more sinister and I slowly <laughs> lose my mind. That would be a great staycation for me. <laughs> I'm like, I'd like to pack up the RV and take the kids from east to west, but nobody wants to come with me. All right, it is uh, 4.45. Thank you, Table Heads, as always. Diana Weeks, Dave Woodard, and Will Erskine, the Friday edition of The Roundtable. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, a memorandum of understanding has been signed by the federal government and the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation uh, that will see thousands of residential school records turned over to the National Committee on Truth and Reconciliation. To talk more about all of this, Patty Doyle Bedwell is with us, Native Studies instructor with Dalhousie University, and with us now. Patty, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. I hope you're well, too. Yes, thanks so much. What does this mean? How significant is this, Patty? This is a very significant step um, because this has been something that's been an ongoing issue for at least 30 years. The records of residential school, of the survivors, of the... um, When I was doing research on my um, LLM thesis on residential school, when I went to the archives to look at the records in Ottawa... They had, uh, they basically had taken a lot of the records out, and were just, and they just had records about you know how many cans of paint they used to paint 
you know, the school or something. So wow. a lot of the records were uh, put away. A lot of them were hidden. And so I think this is important that they finally, after all of this time and six years after the Truth and Reconciliation Report came out, that this is finally happening. Are they hidden or are some destroyed? Are many destroyed? Are they all there? Do you know? Hello. Can you hear me, Patty? Can you hear me? Yes, I can now. I didn't hear you a minute ago. Okay, Okay, so I'll ask the question again. Uh, You said, um, you know, many of the records when you were doing your research had been hidden or such. Uh, Are they hidden or are you fearful that they have been destroyed? Are you confident you will get what you need? Well, I hope that um, now, I hope that people get what they need. Um, I listened to um, an interview with CBC uh, about the narratives of the school and the you know number of students that were there and what had happened there and some of those records are going to be I would say a lot of them are going to be transferred over to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation but I've also heard from um, the minister that there are some records that they're not going to transfer because there's third party entities that involved particularly the Catholic Church and they may not want those records transferred so it's hard to say what they're going to get when they finally get, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of documents that they're transferring back. So, but I'm just saying it's about time that they've done this. Um, I don't know if they destroyed any records. I'm not aware of any records that were destroyed. I just know when I was doing my research in 1995 that um, there were records that I couldn't get access to. They wouldn't let me have them. And Mm -hmm. when I did get records, they wouldn't let me photocopy them. So it, they had a lot of control over access and to those residential school records. And I was just looking at the records for um, the Shubenagadee Residential School in Nova Scotia. I wasn't even trying to find out anything else. So um, I- I'm glad that they, fi- they have finally done this. Um, it's about time, is what I say. Uh, what is contained in these records? What do we hope to learn? Well, some of the records will have... I think they said about the narrative records, you know, the day-to-day goings-on at the school, like who was there, what happened, things like that. Um, There'll be records on how they spent their money. I know that would be involved there. Um, Mm. There'll be records about the students that were brought to the school. And um, I think it's important for survivors and their families to have access to the specific records of when their family members were there, and that will be part of that as well. Um, so a, also, a me- sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I'll go ahead. No, and I said there would there would probably be records of, um, there was some discussion about some of the records um, they're not going to give, which is the uh, testimony of some of the survivors during their um during their, not trials, but when they went to, um, Mm. you know, the tribunal hearings to get damages for what had happened to them. So that's not going to be released. I know that. But there's, it's just that we need to have transparency. We need to see what happened. And the government holding on to those records, as well as the Catholic Church, and not releasing them, it just begs the question, what are you hiding? So I'm glad that they're doing at least putting out some of those records and the narratives are about the schools and about what happened at the schools, the people that were there, like what ages they were when they were there, things like that. Patty Doyle Bedwell with us, Native Studies Instructor, Dalhousie University. A memorandum of understanding has been signed by the federal government and the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation that will see thousands of residential school records turned over. Patty, thanks for the time and insight as oh, always. No Much problem. appreciated. Thank you for having me. Uh, it is Hamilton today. Will Erskine on the board, uh, spinning the, uh, spinning the album in the red cover and in the newsroom is Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Gonna play you an interview and I want to get right to it. This is recorded, uh, back in 2000. 2010, 2010, right here on CHML. Uh, Meatloaf was my guest, and he was promoting uh, Honey Cool Terry, uh, Teddy Bear, which was his latest album. This is a Meatloaf interview from 2010. Uh, it's 421. I'm Scott Thompson. In case you couldn't tell, uh, Meatloaf is here. Let's uh, answer a couple of questions since, uh, boy, they're coming in hot and heavy now. Kathleen, <laughs> uh, say hi to Meatloaf. 
I'm so, that's so awesome. I'm so thrilled to talk to you. Hi, Meatloaf, I love you. Hi, Kathleen, I love you, too. <laughs> I just wanted to know, Meatloaf, if you had to rate, who are, like, some of your top five, four or five recording artists, and, and what are some classic songs, like, Bad Out of Hell is a classic, well, what are some other ones? Okay, so I, I rate, classic. I don't rate recording artists, I rate, I really rate people. <laughs> And if I if I have to rate people that I've been around, I would have rated Freddie Mercury as as a, a really great individual. That whole band was great. Yeah. Brian and Roger really like Freddie. I, I like Steven Tyler. Uh, I mean, he's he's a he's a bit bit, bit odd, but I I like <laughs> yeah, Steven. Yeah. Uh, John Bon Jovi. I uh, the, uh, John Bon Jovi. I met John when he was sixteen, and he was sweeping trying to get wow. his cousin's studio. Yeah. And he asked me to go out to the, my car and listen to his demos, and I still have them. Really? I still have the original oh, Bon Jovi John Bon Jovi demos. So I really love John. Uh, I, uh, Linda Ronstadt was one of my favorite singers. Uh, I don't know Steve Perry, but unbelievable singer. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really judge singers and artists of who 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 they are. So that that that's that's kind of and 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 Seeger, who I've known for years, Bob Seeger, yeah. and you know he wrote one of the I mean he wrote one of the best songs ever, old time rock and roll, yeah, which I, I love that I love that. So those are, I like people that are that are real. That's Thank who you. I am. Thanks, That's Kathleen. Great. Yeah. Thank you. All right, let's uh, move along quickly here. Gary's on the line. Gary, go ahead. You're on with Meatloaf. Hey, how are you, Meatloaf? I'm great. How are you? Good. Stop. Quick questions here. Did you know the Rocky Horror Picture Show is playing in Hamilton? Okay, I was in the. Uh, not only was I in the movie, I was in the in the stage play as well out in in L.A. And in the stage play, I got to play Doctor Scott and Eddie. And and when we did the movie, I was only playing Eddie. The director came to me. Not that the guy playing Doctor Scott was bad, but it changed the whole texture of the movie for me not playing both characters. Oh, and the director cool. came what a great story. Said, came, director came to me and said, "I think I made a mistake." And then I said, I looked at him, I said, well, it's a little late now, isn't it? Yeah, and so really. anyway, but Rocky Horror is great. And yeah, I saw I saw a sign, billboard, as yeah. I, a billboard yeah. driving down the highway as I was coming here yeah. with the Rocky Horror Show. Yeah. And But they, they changed it from the original, I know. I mean, I've heard yeah. stories. They've changed it. All right. Thank you, Gary. Uh, let's hit the Jill uh, really quickly here. Jill, go ahead. What's your question for Meatloaf? Uh, I just want to say, I don't have a question. I just want to say what I watched Danny. I watched a profile on him. What a good family man. <laughs> we don't hear much about that. No, you well, don't hear much about that. I've got, I've got two daughters. One's a, one's a heavy metal singer in a rock band, and I'm the other sorry, one's an actress. I, I can't hear you, but a lot of laughing. But I watched the profile, and I thought, my God, I wasn't even into Dashboard Lights, but I was into you as a person. There you go. Well, that's a nice compliment. Thank you, thank you, Joe. That is a, that's a, I love that. Is a, that's really good. I like that. So one daughter is in a uh, uh, singer uh, for a heavy metal rock band. Well, no, she is. She's got her own band called Pearl. Okay, and and it's not really heavy. Well, it's kind of heavy metal, but it's, it's pretty. It's really rock. And the other one is an actress, and and so they've both gone into show business. Oh, what poor, do they think of the whole meatloaf phenomenon? That whole. Oh well, I can give you the, I can give you a perfect example. <laughs> Pearl's five years old. We go to Central Park. I take her to Central Park, and Bad Out of Hell is like really big at the time, right? She's five years old, and we and we come back, and her mother says, "So Pearl, how was your trip to the park?" She goes, "It was." Terrible. And, and mother goes, why? And she goes, it was just meatloaf, 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 meatloaf. All the time we were there. Meatloaf, meatloaf, meatloaf. And so, I, you know, from then on, I went out and just, I was dressed as a woman every time I went out from then on. All right. There you go. Meatloaf, the brand new album is Hang Cool, Teddy Bear. Yeah, now, a while ago, he was talking about uh, Stephen. Uh, he was getting ready to say Stephen somebody on the news a while ago. I don't know. And I thought he was going to say Stephen Hawkins. No, Harper because, probably. probably. Yeah, Stephen true. Harper. But I thought he was going to say Hawkins. Because you read the article about Stephen Hawkins no. told you not to t talk to aliens. No, you didn't read that. No, no Stephen he, Hawkins is right. He, yeah, he's always talking aliens. So. Yeah, but anyway, okay. the Stephen Hawkins gave everybody a warning: don't talk to aliens. And I, and I said to myself, well, that's really too late for me. <laughs> so anyway, 
I, I live with aliens. Hang Cool Teddy Bear is the new CD. Meatloaf has been with us. A, Scott, a surprise thank you visit. very much. Thank you very much. Uh, we've been chatting quite a bit about how the discussion has changed around COVID-19 and how this has moved away from the dangers of the Omicron variant and more about the dangers of a uh, very much neglected healthcare system that for years uh, people have just uh, passed the buck and the healthcare staff and all the great men and women that uh, work there uh, have uh, work in healthcare have uh, bared the brunt of, of what is going on for the last two years and finally they are exhausted and the system is collapsing and no one seems to want to talk about it it's just about blaming the provinces let's bring in tim powers chairman of summa strategies managing director of abacus data and with us now tim thank you for the time i hope you're well and let me apologize for yesterday, Scott. As Don't I you worry. Will, as I said to Will, it had slipped my mind because I was supposed to talk to you while my son and I were skating, and uh, I forgot, and you ended up getting him on the phone. He would have been far more interesting if he was in the throes <laughs> of a Pokemon game, which is a bit like maybe discussing health care these days. Who's going to get caught and who's not? Hey, skating with your son is way more important than doing an interview on this show, and you take that any time over this, believe me. All right, so, uh, you know, uh, we, we remember as we came back after the holidays, uh, the Prime Minister was humiliating everybody in the last 5 to 10% who were not vaccinated because it was literally crippling our, crippling our healthcare system. Then as people got this and came out the other end, uh, they realized this was less about Omicron and more about a crumbling healthcare system. Mm-hmm. The provinces, uh, Doug Ford came out at his news conference yesterday and, and really took aim at the Prime Minister. He said all the provinces are on board. None of us can cope with what is going on, uh, not only with Omicron, but the uh, lack of funding prior to. We remember back in the day, it used to be 50-50 from the feds and the province. Now I think uh, the feds are paying about 22% of Ontario's bill. Uh, we know it's a provincial jurisdiction, but let's be honest, if the provinces can't do it, how the heck can, or sorry, if the federal government can't pay for it, how can the provinces, is there anybody out there in opposition in the in the feds that wants to even touch this, or are they letting the prime minister handle it? They're letting the prime minister handle it. You'll remember, I think it was just before the election campaign, no, um, there was an ad that came out during the campaign uh, when Aaron O'Toole was misquoted, I think it was, or uh, correct or constructively quoted as suggesting he might, you know, support some forms of, of private health care. Nobody wants to discuss this, and nobody wants to talk about what we really need to do, which it isn't just upping the funding. And I think we, we talked about this a week or two ago, Scott. Yeah. It's about let's get into the whole system. I mean, we compare ourselves to the United States. Well, why is it, um, why haven't they had the same degree of restrictions? Because they have more facilities that allow people to be treated, but they also have pay, user pay health care. So, yeah. you know, the provinces and the feds can go back and forth, but the whole system, if it's going to have a real overhaul, then needs to have a, there needs to be a real discussion about what should be private and what should be public and who's paying for what and who, who isn't. And it seems when we have this discussion, it's one extreme to the other. You're going to end up with a U.S. system. It's like, well, nobody wants that. Is there not something in between that we can solve this problem? But instead, it's either all or nothing. And we seem as Canadians more comfortable bragging about our health system than really understanding that it's 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 crumbling right now. And, and these these issues need to be addressed. But instead, we brag. It might have been great when Tommy Douglas kicked it off. Uh, yeah, when it was fifty-fifty, when it, and, and a long time ago when the health health um, circumstances of the of uh, Canadians were different. Um, yeah, we have this romantic, nostalgic notion of free healthcare. Well, we also got to get a grip that we can't have everything. What do we start this pandemic off with? concerns about the lack of investment long-term care homes well that problem hasn't improved and it still needs to be addressed every weakness um every, every major issue that we've seen related to healthcare in the system has demonstrated it to be a significant weakness that requires significant cash we can't do all of that so can we not have an honest discussion about what we can do and who can do what and where we can go with it and shed this romantic bs notion that Yes, we can have magnificent public pay health care, and it'll be perfect. It's not going to be. And if you're a patient now who's on a wait list for surgery, I'm sure yeah. you're feeling this more acutely than you and I are today, Scott, talking about it. 
the provinces are having this discussion, but it doesn't seem the feds are. So if you're in opposition, why don't you stand up and and take control of this situation and point out what we're pointing out today? Well, you could if you're the NDP and go all Pollyannish, but nobody's going to believe you. And the Conservatives, again, probably feel a little bit vulnerable because they're they're they will get called out for even suggesting so so why not have so why not have that discussion tim so why not say hey you know what we're not talking about america uh, you know taking the system and, and and turning it into an american system we're not talking about that what we're talking about is somehow coming up with a funding formula that allows us to have a, a system we can be really proud of whether that's getting more funding from the feds more funding from province uh, uh, or from uh, private industry what have you again no one's talking about having you know a complete american system why don't the gov- why doesn't the- why don't the conservatives just come out and tell the truth and, and preach what needs to be done? Have you looked at the quality of the uh, look? Are there lots of well-meaning people in uh, in Canadian politics? But substantive, thoughtful debate or critique <laughs> is not rewarded, um, and we don't have you know a series of senior actors in all camps who can say, "Let's not make this about." cheapen points. If we're going to learn from this pandemic, we need to learn that we need to reconstruct healthcare or modernize healthcare. Pick your descriptor. You don't have the leadership um, across all parties prepared to do that on a sustaining basis because they don't see political wins in it. I think at this point, don't you think the public will demand it? Uh, maybe, um, but, but again, are the, it's like a, it almost ventures into the territory, and it will venture into the territory of being a constitutional discussion. How well have they mm-hmm. gone in the past, Scott? Yeah, <laughs> tell, me, tell me one in the last thirty years that, uh, or forty years, if you add in Meech Lake, I guess, um, w- which was based on ph- philosophic realignment of, cult of the pro- country and, and how we ought to look at it. How, how did they go? Not so well. And instead, around and around Sorry we go. Sorry to make depress you. On I know, I know. You, it's that Friday afternoon. You can come skate with my son and I next time. Far more. I'm doing it. Tim Powers with us, Chairman of Super Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you for the time. Be well and have a skate from me. Yeah, and two out of three ain't bad, Scott. Have a good <laughs> weekend. Bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've had this discussion, and I'm trying to open this discussion up a bit more and and, and hammer away at this, because I think for me, um, over the holidays, uh, my opinion changed on uh, COVID. Probably getting it had something to do with it. And I really believe now that this discussion is less about the dangers of Omicron and more about the dangers of our much-lauded healthcare system, uh, which is crumbling under the pressure because it has been neglected, not because of the great men and women that work in the healthcare industry, whatever they do. They are dedicated people, but they've been screaming for help for decades, for decades, and no one listens to them. And instead, we pass political bucks back and forth. And it's amazing that we spend more time bragging about our health system than actually looking at it and seeing where we can make it better. And hopefully, Hopefully, with what we've learned from this global pandemic, we can finally pay attention and get our politicians to pay attention uh, to the healthcare system and, and, and fix what needs fixing, whether that's a mixture of private and public. Uh, again, whenever we have these discussions, everybody brings up the American system. We're going to go like that. It's like there has to be a happy medium here. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Ahmad, I wanted to have you on because I know you're a health policy expert and uh, this is an issue that's close to your heart. Has the discussion changed? Have we finally realized that we need to stop bragging and start really looking at some of the shortfalls we're having, uh, whether it's hall- hallway medicine, uh, wait times that were in existence long before a global pandemic? The pandemic has just brought this all to the forefront. Are we ready to have this discussion? Well, I think that you bring up an excellent point. I think the discussion has been held for a long time, but the problem is getting government officials to actually listen to that discussion and put the money where it counts. Uh, what I mean by that is supporting innovative approaches to reform our healthcare system so it can respond to crises like COVID-19 and future uh, crises. I think this 
we walk away from this pandemic uh, learning a lot about our ability of our system to be resilient. How do we support our healthcare workers? How do we support our fa- their families that are sitting at home? Can we treat healthcare workers like veterans that go to war? And by that I mean is that can we build mechanisms to support them financially, mentally, uh, through the struggles they have to they have to withstand over a prolonged period of time? But also, how do we make sure that our healthcare system provides equitable access to care to everybody involved? Much of our conversation during the pandemic has been about people like you and I who are accessing healthcare services, and very little about people who don't have access to the system to begin with. I'm talking about our homeless population, our marginalized groups, our indigenous population. They, those already present with great barriers to accessing our health system, and COVID-19 just made those barriers even bigger uh, and wider. And so we really need to be looking now at our healthcare system and thinking carefully, how do we reform it? Uh, when this all started way back when, it was 50-50 split between the provinces and the feds. Now I think uh, the feds for Ontario pay about 22%. The provinces, the rest. It's pretty obvious, doctor, that the provinces can't handle this. I mean, this is a problem that's going on right the way across the country. Uh, if if the feds can't pay for it, how can the provinces? So what is the solution? Is it more money from the feds? Is it bringing more private uh, money into the system? How do we find the balance? Because from what I understand, we're so far behind, it's going to take a major rejigging to fix this. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily just about you know throwing more money at the problem. It's really no. stepping back and realizing, to your earlier point, what are the core issues and what innovation can we put in place that can actually address those issues. What ends up happening in our healthcare system is that we build mechanisms in place or systems and processes and procedures that have you know created legacies over a long period of time that makes it very difficult to change it now. And so what is really needed to get this reform happening is A, leadership that believes in the need for reform, and B, you know, bringing in the smartest people that we have in our country. And we have those people who are going to be at the forefront of this innovation and push it forward. But you can only push for innovation if you have uh, leadership support behind it. And that's sustained, continued leadership support, not intermittent and not based on the political values of the party that is in power now. It seems that the solutions that have been given over the last several decades, whether it's a bit here, a bit there, a lump sum here, a lump sum there, have only added to the layers of this onion, have only made it more complicated. So now when we're X number of years out and we try to refine this, rejig this, it's, it's almost impossible to do. Do you have the confidence that we can do this? Do you have the Because this has been a, a, a talking point for an awfully long time now. And I think a lot of people, especially with where we are with the global pandemic, have, have finally realized this is a problem. I agree with you, and I think it's going to take all of us to make our voice loud and clear. I think before, before COVID-19, many of us, we were just uh, silent observers of our healthcare system. And COVID-19 made us all active participants in the way we want our health system to look like uh, and how we want it to function. So I bet you that come the next election, uh, health systems will be a, a key you know, issue that many of us will raise with our candidates. It will shape the way we vote. Uh, for people, and I think that that's how we exert our influence on the shaping of our health system. When we make it clear to our policymakers and our government officials that you can no longer have haphazard approach to shaping our health system, that you must take an innovative, you know, evidence-based model of practice towards how we shape our health system, that will change. I do have confidence that, you know, our system will change the better. Uh, and I do believe that we have the smart minds in our country that are able to carry us through that. It seems as if this is an ongoing fight between the federal government and the provinces, whatever the whatever the political stripe of the day is, that the, the feds keep pushing it. Everybody knows it's a provincial jurisdiction. Well, everybody knows it's been failing, uh, you know, o- over the decades, for, you know, as a result of, of the changes that have, have come about. Um, is this... Do you see these two sides, the, these two different levels of government coming together? I mean, is that what's going to take? Is it going to take all the premiers and, and you know, even leaders of the opposition, uh, as well as the prime minister, to get on board this? Well, yeah, they would have to because we're seeing this over and over again. You know, the COVID-19, we saw the differences in the healthcare approach or delivery of healthcare between the provinces, you know, and, the, and it was quite stark from, from one province to another. 
And so I think that they, you know, they use it as a leveraging coin. The provinces against the federal government, you know, it's finger pointing and blaming who is responsible for this. It's very easy to say, you know, we're not able to deliver because we're not getting the money from the federal government, which is not really the entirety of the truth, right? It's about how do you allocate your funds? Where do you focus your funding at? Are you building, are you anticipating the needs and building processes to anticipate that need early on? And so I do think that, you know, the time will come very soon that, that I mean, at least it's a hope that that conversation will be happening about do we need to, to reshape the way we structure our healthcare system. Now, will it happen soon? I don't think so. I think those things take a long time and they take a big um, sort of a focusing event for it to happen. COVID-19 might be that focusing event. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert, talking about the changes that need to be uh, need to be made to, to the Canadian healthcare system in order to sustain the next global pandemic. Doctor, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Same to you. Stay safe. Uh, you're back there, and the band is playing in, during the break, and then you hear Johnny start to talk. Welcome back, uh, making his national television debut on the Tonight Show, and then he introduces you. And you just, they part that curtain and suddenly it, you've gone from really literally the, the idea of a famous backstage to into people's living rooms. And it was, it was surreal. It was almost like out of body. And then afterwards I shook Johnny's hand and he came back to my dressing room afterwards and said, good shot, kid. There you go. That's uh, Louis Anderson, comedian Louis Anderson, who passed away today as well, uh, talking about his first appearance on The Tonight Show uh, with Johnny Carson. And you know you're getting old in radio when two people pass away and you've got interviews for them somewhere in your archive that you can play back. Uh, Louis Anderson, a uh, great comedian and uh, will be greatly missed as well. All right, it is 5.52, and let's talk to Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and, of course, coming on after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I am doing fine. Do you remember Louis Anderson's greatest role, though? Uh, yes, he was on a TV show. What? Well, it was. So you probably will not remember this. Nobody will. But during the early days or early-ish days of reality TV, when everybody had to come up with something that went along with The Apprentice, where you had like a bunch of celebrities doing something crazy, Louis Anderson was in a diving competition. <laughs> along with... <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and I can't remember who else. <laughs> I don't and, remember that. Uh, Louis Anderson decided to wear a like one-piece wetsuit for his, uh, which was probably a wise choice. But um, if you can find any evidence of it online, um, there you go. There's your uh, there's there's your Louis Anderson for the day. All right. Yeah, he was. A, I always thought he did a great stand-up. I was. He he was one of my favorites. All and right. Uh, he was great. Yeah. Yeah. Your thoughts on uh, the passing of Meatloaf? Do you have a Meatloaf memory? Is this one of those songs that you know, or one of those albums, uh, "Bad Out of Hell," that stands out in your life? Are you too young for that? No. See, the <laughs> last time he came to Hamilton, maybe the only time he came to Hamilton, I don't know, was probably twelve or thirteen years ago, and I was mm-hmm. there. I was in the fifth row to see Meatloaf to see the loaf. Which, um, yeah, by the way, this is true story. There are some newspapers that are that uh, stick very strictly to uh, the honorific system. That's just their style. And there are more than a few newspapers, you can find them again online, that in interviews with him or reviews would refer to him in second reference and beyond as Mr. Loaf, which I yeah. think is great. But yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, he came to Hamilton. He played, as I say, probably about a decade ago and couldn't hit the notes anymore, yeah. but still was a great show. Like he still put on a fantastic show. You, you had to just sort of pretend you were listening to the music from back when and just watch what was in front of you. It's uh he was certainly one of those performers that it, it was almost like he was acting the part of a rock of star as opposed yeah. to a rock star. Yeah, no, absolutely. He was. And you want to know something? I watched a little clip today of um, one of the videos. I can't remember two out of three bad or mm-hmm. bad out of hell or whatever. And you know who I think, and it suddenly dawned on me, you know who imitates Meatloaf in his act but has sort of taken it on as his own thing now? You watch an old Meatloaf video and now watch Jack Black do his rock and roll <laughs> Jack Black, I'm telling you, saw Meatloaf videos and copied it. That's exactly the facial expression and everything else that he does when he does his rock stuff. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I'm sure he inspired a lot of people. And again, that was one of those albums that uh, oh, yeah. you know, I was talking to Alan Cross about it. You, you'd go to a party and people would put on side one and then side two. You'd listen to the whole thing all the way through. I mean, those were the days of the album. Do you believe the story that Phil Rizzuto didn't know what he was saying when he did the, uh, yeah. the commentary <laughs> yeah. and he yeah. was tricked into it? Uh, I don't believe it for a minute, but, it, you know. But Scooter had to keep his, you know, pristine image and not let on that he was talking about, you know what. I'll tell you, yeah, though, you know, it was such a time of innocence when you think about it, even though it wasn't much of a time of innocence. But, yeah, I mean, you know, nobody, you, you, you said things like that. It was when people never talked about sex. They just alluded to it with other language or other, you know, uh, other symbols, that sort of thing. Whereas now they just say it. Yeah, but it was like a real tee-hee kind of thing that Phil Rizzuto yeah. was talking about that. Um, yes. But I'll tell you, go online, one other one to look up, and if people want to look up something today, not during my show, preferably, but after, Meatloaf did a sit-down on a couch on another talk show. I can't remember which talk show. It's an unbelievable story. Meatloaf, as a young boy in high school, was at Parkland Memorial Hospital when they brought in the limo with JFK after he'd been shot and killed. He was, oh. he was standing beside the limousine. Holy smokes. It's I've never heard that story. story yeah. That you got to wow. watch. And, and, you know, he tells this whole thing and he, he grew up in Dallas and they yeah, heard yeah. that the president had been shot and they were only a mile from Parkland. So they said, let's go to Parkland. And they got, they got pulled over by a secret service guy walking along the street, flashed his badge and took over his car with them in it and drove them to the hospital. Holy smokes. It's an unbelievable. You, this is, I had never heard this story before. It's That's amazing. Uh, why you should be listening to the Scott Radley Show. And it is coming up moments from now. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will and Dave and Diana for helping. As always, we leave it to you. The CHML listener for the last word. I got home from work today. My wife told me that the meatloaf died. I responded with, honey, your meatloaf has been dead for a while. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.